You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. begin reading at verse 1. But he greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came in the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Let's bow together before we begin. Our Father, Your Word is light to us, and it is our food. It is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, and more precious than gold and silver. And we ask this morning that You would give to us a right evaluation of Your Word. We pray that You would open our hearts to receive what You have for us in it. And may Your Spirit be our teacher, and may Your Word be our guide, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a great admiration in my heart for teachers or preachers who can come up with great object lessons just on the spot. I don't have that ability. You could give me three months to come up with an object lesson and I wouldn't be able to come up with anything that would hold a kid's attention for more than 20 seconds, which is why they don't let me teach the children in Hawaii very often. I do games and as kind of a last ditch um, option, I sometimes come in and do question and answer. Not an object lesson, but question and answer. And I think there's a reason behind that. Uh, Dave Rich, on the other hand, can come up with an object lesson in a heartbeat. You could give him any object at random. In five minutes' time, he could come up with an object lesson that would captivate children for a month if he just stood there and talked with them. But, and there are others here who have the same ability to do great object lessons and to come up with them on the fly. I don't have that ability. I do admire teachers who have that capacity, though. Just a couple weeks ago, I was out at the camp, Kokolala, uh, doing the staff training. And I showed up in the morning, and there was a morning chapel. that I didn't have to do that. I was doing a session after the morning chapel, but there was a, another pastor who spoke in that chapel. And then after chapel, they announced to all of the kids, they said, we want all of you, and this is all the staff, so it's the teenagers, not the kids in camp, but just the, the teens who are the cabin leaders. They said, we want you to go out to this certain part on the camp property, and there you'll find a pile of rocks. I want everybody to go out and get a rock. You pick whichever rock you want and then bring it back here to the dining hall, and we'll tell you what you're going to do with it. So we all went out to the big pile of rocks, and there were rocks out there, some as small as golf balls, some of them as big as basketballs, and each kid picked a rock. Some of them picked small rocks, some of them picked the basketball-sized rock, and we packed them all the way back to the dining hall, and then we sat down, and uh, the director got up, and he said, now here's what you're going to do. You're going to pack your rock around with you all day long, all the way until the evening chapel. 
We're not going to tell you what this is about, but you have to keep your rock with you. And everywhere you go, to the bathroom, to your cabin, to play football, your rock has to come with you. Anything you're going to do today, you've got to take, except canoeing. They said you don't have to take your rock canoeing. You can leave your rock on the shore, but for every other activity, you have to take your rock with you. Well, this fascinated me. And I noticed some of the kids who had the big rocks sort of took rope and made slings out of them, or they emptied out their backpacks and put them in the backpacks so that they could carry them around and be easier. Some of the kids had really small rocks so they could put the rock in their pocket. And other kids just had, like I picked a rock that was big enough to hold in one hand, and I packed it around with me the whole time I was there. But I wasn't going to be there till the evening chapel. So I went up to the director and I said, I'm not going to be here for when you reveal what this is all about. And I know this is an object lesson. I'm really curious to know what the point of all of this is. So he shared it with me. He said, tonight at the evening chapel, we're going to show the similarities between the rock and sin. And how when we sin and we continue to live in sin and we carry our sins around with us, it's much like packing a rock around. Now that may be lost on you initially, but then we sat around for about five minutes and came up with a half a dozen great parallels between the rock and sin. For instance, some of the children, when they went out to the rock pile, they thought that the big rock was going to get them some sort of reward, some sort of recognition, some sort of prize. So they got the biggest rock they could carry. Then they got back to the dining hall and they knew that then found out that they couldn't trade their rock to anybody else. They had to carry their rock around with them. Isn't that much like sin? Sometimes we dive into a big one thinking the payoff is going to be X, and then we find out, man, I've got to carry, I've got to live with the consequences of this. And sometimes the consequences can be rather heavy. Other kids had a small rock and they put it in their pocket and it was unnoticeable to everybody else around, but they knew that it was there, even though nobody else could see their rock, they knew the rock was there, and every once in a while they would do something or they would see somebody else's rock, and then they would remember their own rock, even though not visible to everybody else, it was a constant reminder to them that they had a rock in their pocket. Not to be confused with the locket in your pocket, the Dr. Seuss book, this is a rock in your pocket. Other kids took their rock and they named their rock. And they wrote the name on the rock in a marker. Some of them, I guess, in order to personalize it and sort of make it part of the family or part of themselves. Others decorated their rock, drew little things on it, tried to cover up the blemishes on their rock, tried to make their rock more presentable and more respectable and get other people to like their rock. And isn't a rock just like sin? We try and find an easy way to carry it and deal with it. And even though we pack it around, we try and make it lighter or Sometimes we even brag about our rocks. Some kids were doing that, bragging about their rocks. Look at my rock. You know how pretty it is? You ever seen somebody brag about their iniquity or brag about their sin or their exploits or what they've done? A lot of parallels, right? Those of you that are good at object lessons could come up with another dozen parallels between a rock and sin. Well, isn't it just like God to use an object lesson and a powerful object lesson to teach Jonah a very important lesson? And that's what God does in Jonah chapter 4. He has an object lesson that is custom crafted, not for a class, but for one prophet. One reluctant, rebellious, angry, disobedient prophet. And God knows exactly what He has to do to get Jonah's attention, exactly what He has to do to manifest the realities of Jonah's heart, and then exactly what He needs to say to Jonah in order to deal with Jonah's sin. So in Jonah chapter 4, we have an object lesson. And it's just like God to have a perfect object lesson. And this one in Jonah chapter 4 is perfect just for Jonah. And it is an object lesson that uses a plant, a worm, and a wind.
to teach Jonah an important lesson. So look at Jonah chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 5. Verse 5 falls uh, comes on the heels of God's question to Jonah in verse 4. Do you have a right to be angry? Then it says in verse 5, Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. Did Jonah answer the Lord's question? And I wonder why not. Later on he does. But why doesn't Jonah initially answer the Lord's question? Do you have a right, Jonah, to be angry? Do you have a reasonable excuse? Do you have a justification for your anger? And Jonah is silent. And I think that that is because Jonah thinks he has a right to his anger, but at the same time, Jonah doesn't want to express that to the Lord because he knows it's foolish to try and convince the Lord of his justification for his anger. And so Jonah instead goes out east of the city to set up a vigil, as it were. Sort of a silent vigil. He leaves the city of Nineveh and he goes out east of it. Now there's a chronology here that I think is important if we're going to understand what the Lord is going to do. So I want you to follow this chronology. Some people suggest that Jonah went into the city of Nineveh and he preached to the city. And then before they repented and before he saw what happened, before God relented of the calamity, that Jonah then went out east, set up his tent, sat there and waited to see what God would do. I don't think that that's the chronology. Jonah was in the city and he saw the results of his preaching. He saw that God granted repentance to the Ninevites. He saw that God was going to relent of his calamity, probably told that by divine revelation. Then Jonah got angry. Then he had the conversation with the Lord in verses 2, 3, and 4. Then when Jonah realized that he was sort of in a corner, as it were, God asking him, do you have a right to be angry? Then Jonah left the city. And he went out of the city of Nineveh and he went east of it. Most likely because the Tigris River ran along the west side of the city. So Jonah went on the out, out on the other side of the city, east of the city, and he set up a shelter. Why would Jonah set up the shelter and begin this vigil outside the city of Nineveh? Uh, Jonah leaves the city, and I don't know if this is right or not, but I picture Jonah wandering sort of around the countryside from spot to spot, trying to find the best, best vantage point. Now, maybe he didn't. Maybe he just left, went out and sat in a hole somewhere. But it wouldn't surprise me if Jonah went out and went from spot to spot, mountaintop to mountaintop, ridge to ridge, peak to peak, somewhere where he could get the best view of the city. You do that when you're hunting, right men? You go out and if you're going to sit down somewhere, you want to find a place where you can see the most amount of territory, you have the best view. I suspect that that's what Jonah did. Outside the city, setting up camp, waiting and watching, and he wanted to see what God was going to do to the city. Now, perhaps God would rain down fire like on Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps the ground would open it up and swallow it like the children of Korah. Or perhaps God would bring an invading army in to destroy and to pillage and to burn the city. But whatever it was, it was fine with Jonah as long as he had a good view of it when it happened. So he goes outside the city and he sets up, it says, a shelter. The word means a pavilion or a booth or a tent. It was the same word used in Leviticus chapter 23 of the shelters that the children of Israel would build for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents. So Jonah would have put up sticks. It's not an overnight shelter. It's more of a permanent shelter. It was something that they lived in when they did this for the Feast of Booths. They would live in it for seven days. So the text seems to indicate that whatever it was that Jonah set up, that he was intending to be there for a period of time. Several nights, maybe a week or two, to see what would happen in the city. 
Now, why did Jonah do this? He knew, did he not, that God was a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. He knew that God was going to relent of the calamity that he brought upon, that he said he would bring upon Nineveh. Jonah knew that Nineveh had repented and he knew that God was going to spare the city. So why would he set up a tent outside and wait to see what would happen to the city? Let me offer you three suggestions. The first, I don't think really has too much merit, but some people, and rather respectable commentators and scholars actually, have suggested that Jonah misunderstood God's question, do you have a right to be angry? That when the Lord asked Jonah, do you have a right to be angry, that Jonah thought that what the Lord meant was, hey, hey, Jonah, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you really have a right to be angry? The show is not over. You don't know what I'm about to do. Your anger just might be premature. And that Jonah, thinking that God might yet destroy the city, went outside of the city and set up his shelter to wait and to see what God would do. I don't know. I think Jonah knew that God was relenting of his anger. And I think Jonah knew that God's intention was to spare the city. So why would Jonah do this? Let me offer you a couple other suggestions. It may be that Jonah was thinking that God might yet change his mind and destroy the city after all. Have you ever known somebody who tried to wait God out? They know what God's Word says. They know what God's will is. But they think that if they wait long enough to obey it, that somehow God's nature will change, His mind will change, and God will then think that it's okay for them to do what they wanted to do. I think it's possible that Jonah was hoping that God would change his mind, change his nature, change his will, and in some way go ahead and destroy the city, even though he had already pledged that he wouldn't destroy the city. Or it's possible even that Jonah expected that the repentance of Nineveh would be short-lived. Get the prophet out of the city, out of sight, out of their mind, and give the city of Nineveh three, four days, a week, a week and a half, and like a dog returns to its vomit, like a sow having washed to its wallowing in the mire, these unrepentant, truly unrepentant, heathen idolaters will go right back to their sinful ways, and then God will see that their repentance was not genuine. Then God will see that Jonah's point was valid and just. Then God will come around to seeing things the way Jonah saw them and recognize that it was right for him to destroy the city after all. Maybe that's what Jonah expected. But he sets up a tent outside the city of Nineveh, and you'll notice he made a shelter for himself and he sat under it in the shade. The shelter became a shade for him until he could see what would happen in the city. And then I want you to know what, notice what happens next. Now, this is God's work. Jonah's work is in verse 5. Here's what the Lord does. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over, over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. Now, something that we miss between verses 5 and verse 6 that I think is significant is the fact that Jonah went out of the city. Let me ask you this question. What was the role of a prophet? A prophet of God. It wasn't merely to foretell future events. That was only a small portion of their their ministry and their function. The role of a prophet of God was to teach God's Word to the people. Not just to foretell, but to foretell. To proclaim and to instruct and to teach the Word of God and the will of God to the people of God. Now in Jonah should have done what Paul did when Paul went into the city. Do you remember what Paul did? He would go into the city, proclaim Christ, win some converts to the Lord, and then the people would gather and Paul publicly and from house to house would teach the people day after day after day until they ran him out of the city. Why? Because Paul knew we have these converts, these people have repented, 
Now my job is to instruct them further in the way and the will of God. Jonah had on his hands a large number of people who had repented, who were willing to listen, who were receptive to Jonah's God, and instead of staying in the city and teaching the people, Jonah quit before his job was done and went outside the city. And you know why? He didn't want them to repent to begin with. And having repented, he didn't want to stick around and teach them. He should have stayed in the city and gathered together the people and began to teach them about Israel's God so that they could learn how to walk in obedience to this God whom they had repented of their sin and turned to. But Jonah didn't do that. He didn't teach them one word. He went out of the city and he sat up on the hill and he waited to see what God was going to do. And then verse 6 says, So the Lord appointed a plant to grow. I want you to notice the word appointed is repeated three times in this passage. Or repeated twice. It's mentioned three times in this passage. God appointed a plant. God appointed a worm. And God appointed a weed. Back in chapter 1 it was used, you remember, of the fish. God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. So if you don't mind using the word whale instead of fish, you can alliterate it. A whale, a weed, a worm, and a wind. All four of those things the Lord appointed. The Lord appointed them in the sense that God ordained to use them. He designed to use them. It indicates the miraculous nature of each one of those four things. The fish, the plant, the weed, and the, or the worm, and the wind. All four of those are by God's design. All four of them are God's hand supernaturally, miraculously designing these events. These are not natural phenomena. These are not things that we could attribute to happenstance or freaks of nature or just normal things that happen. All four of these are supernatural. The first thing, God appoints a plant. And notice what it says in verse 6. A plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. What kind of a plant is this? The word, and if you have the NIV, I think it translates it as ivy. The NASB and the New King James translate it as a plant. And the Old King James has a gourd. A gourd. It is a, the word is gagayon in the Hebrew, and it just simply refers to a plant. It's sort of a generic plant. Most scholars are willing to assume or presume that this was likely a resinous plant or a castor oil plant. Charles Feinberg, in his commentary in the book of Jonah, says, quote, the gourd was a resinous plant. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. The palma Christi, which is native to India, Palestine, Arabia, Africa, and Eastern Europe, it attains a height usually from 8 to 10 feet. The plant has large leaves and grows up in a few days, but it is easily withered by an injury to the tender stalk, end quote. That sounds kind of like the plant that you might find here. A vine doesn't cast very much shade. And this plant was used by God to bring shade and comfort to Jonah. I want you to notice something, and this is significant. The plant is only extra shade. What did Jonah have that was originally shade for him? It was his shelter. So what God provides in the plant is not the initial shade. It's extra shade. It's grace shade, if you would. It's comfort beyond what he already had in the shelter. In other words, when God takes away the plant, Listen, God did not take anything from Jonah that God had not first given to Jonah. And God did not take all of Jonah's shade. He still had the shelter. So the shade is merely, or the, the plant is merely extra shade. It's not even necessary for Jonah. He would have been fine with just the shelter. But God gives him a gift of grace, which is this plant. 
And it's the shade in order to deliver Jonah from his discomfort. That last phrase has two meanings. Listen, this is key. Two meanings. And the two meanings, the double, double meaning is intentional. The word deliver can mean deliver or to shade. And some translations put shade there. The word that's translated shade or deliver can speak of shading something, like protecting it or putting something over it, or to deliver. Not to deliver like your mailman delivers, but to deliver in the sense of protecting or guarding something or delivering something from a calamity. It can mean to shade something, or it can mean to deliver something. And likewise, the word distress or discomfort is also translated wickedness. It has two meanings. It can mean uh, discomfort or distress, or it can mean wickedness. In fact, it's used and translated wickedness in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, go and cry out against the city of Nineveh because their wickedness has come up from before me. And then later in Jonah chapter 1, verse 8, the same word is translated calamity. Tell us on whose account, the sailors asked Jonah, has this calamity struck us? So it can mean wickedness, calamity, destruction, or it can mean discomfort or distress. Which means the last phrase for the purpose of the plant could be translated two ways. It could be translated this. The plant grew up in order to give Jonah shade to shade him from his discomfort. The sun being the discomfort, the plant being the shelter or the shade from the discomfort of the sun. Or the same phrase could just as easily be translated that the plant grew up in order to deliver Jonah from his wickedness. Now what wickedness would God be trying to deliver Jonah from? The unrighteous anger of his heart. In other words, the purpose of the plant was not just to offer Jonah shade from the sun. It was to deliver Jonah from the wickedness of his heart. That's why God sent the plant. He knew what Jonah needed, and he knew what Jonah needed in order to be delivered from that unrighteous indignation, that unrighteous anger, his bitterness and his resentment. And so God caused the plant to rise up because that was going to be the instrument through which God would deliver Jonah from his heart's wickedness. The plant didn't last long. Look at verse 7. Oh, sorry, back to verse 6. Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. You know what's interesting about that? This is the first time we read of Jonah being happy. In the whole book. And this is the last time you're going to read of Jonah being happy too. He was giddy over what? The plant. Finally, Jonah is happy. When God gave him the call to go to Nineveh, he wasn't happy about that, so he ran. Got on board the ship, God sent a storm. He wasn't happy about that. He wanted off the ship into the water. So they threw him overboard into the water. And Jonah wasn't happy about that. So God sent a fish to deliver him from the water. And Jonah wasn't happy about that. And then the fish regurgitated Jonah up onto dry land. And he was called to preach again. And presumably, Jonah wasn't happy about that call. So he went to Nineveh and he preached and they repented and God relented. Jonah wasn't happy about that. Jonah wasn't happy when he got what he wanted. And Jonah wasn't happy when he didn't get what he wanted. Jonah is never happy anywhere in the book until a plant grows up. And then Jonah is what? Extremely happy about the plant. And things are great. Verse 7 says, God appointed a worm when the dawn came the next day. Indicating that the plant likely grew up in one day's time, not over the course of several weeks or several months, The plant grew up in one day's time. It provided shade for Jonah. And now Jonah is happy. He's got his shelter. 
He's got the plant, and I can imagine Jonah going to bed that night with a contented grin on his face. Finally, the Lord is coming around to seeing things my way. He sent the plant, and I have the shelter, and I have the shade, and tomorrow's a new day. I'm going to get up tomorrow morning. I'm going to sit in my shelter with my plant over top of my head, and I'm going to watch the city of Nineveh, and maybe tomorrow will be the day that God will destroy the city of Nineveh, and then I will not just be extremely happy, I'll be very extremely happy. The future was so bright for Jonah, he had to wear shades. Until the next day when the dawn came, and a worm, that's what it says, God appointed the worm, and it attacked the plant. I want you to notice two things. And this, the first we will deal with in more detail next week. But I want you to notice these two things. First of all, the destruction of the plant is what really gets Jonah's goat. It is the destruction of the plant that angers him. God knew what he had to do to get at Jonah. It wouldn't suffice just with the wind or just some other form of discomfort. But God destroys the plant. And that's significant because the plant is the issue you see down in verse 9. Do you have a right to be angry with the plant? And Jonah says, yes, I have a right to be angry, even to death. So God's destruction of the plant is the issue later on. We'll look at that more next week. The second thing I want you to notice, who sent the worm? God appointed the worm. Do you know that God could have sent that worm to a thousand other food sources anywhere around Jonah? But where did God send that worm? To that one plant. Was this an accident? It was not an accident. God is intentionally destroying the one thing that at this point was closest to Jonah's heart. God's hand is in this. God is free to destroy. God is taking a blessing from Jonah that He had already given to Jonah. Did, do you know that God, as the giver of your blessings, has every right to take your blessings from you? Do you realize that? A lot of times we like to give God credit for all the good things that He does for us. We like to give Him credit for the sun and the beautiful weather and the provision that He's given us in our job and our families and our wives and the food and all of that. And all of that is right and good and we ought to do that. But then when calamity strikes, oftentimes we fail to recognize that there is a hand behind it and there might be a purpose in it. So it is the worm that destroys the plant, and it is God who has appointed the worm to do the destruction. And then notice further, verse 8, after the plant withered and the worm attacked the plant, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. So who caused the plant to grow? God did. Who caused the worm to visit the plant, destroy the plant? God did. And who sent the east wind, the scorching east wind? God did. Did God control the temperature of the wind? He certainly did. He controlled the direction of the wind. And He controlled the timing of the wind. There's nothing here that is merely circumstantial. There's nothing here that is a, a coincidence or a freak of nature. All of this is supernatural phenomena, a supernatural object lesson to get at Jonah's heart. And God is behind all of it. God was behind Jonah's comfort with the plant. And listen, God is behind Jonah's discomfort with the wind. Now I ask you this. 
Does your theology have room for a God that would make you uncomfortable? Is there room in your theology for a God who would actually move the elements and move events to make you uncomfortable or even miserable? Or does the God you worship, little g, only concern Himself with your comfort and your happiness? You see, the God who gives blessings is free to take blessings. The God who gave you prosperity is free to take your prosperity. The God who poured out upon you uh, life and health and all of those things is free to take those things from you, and it is not a crime for Him to do so. The God who gave you life is free to take your life, and God is also free to send you discomfort and calamity in order to get your attention. Sometimes it is true that our afflictions are God's messengers. Sometimes afflictions are simply the result of living in a fallen world, but sometimes afflictions are God's messengers to teach us something And you and I ought not to run from those afflictions, and we ought not to run toward our comfort as if that is God's highest good for us. Because it is not. God is not interested in Jonah's comfort. God is not interested in Jonah's happiness. What is God interested in? Jonah's holiness. That's what God wants. He doesn't care if Jonah is comfortable. He wants Jonah holy. He doesn't care if Jonah is happy. He wants him holy. And so God does this in order to make Jonah a holy prophet so that God could use him because God is interested with his heart. God sends us affliction. And I ask you, does your theology have room for a God that would make you uncomfortable or make you even miserable at times in order to teach you things, to teach me things? It ought to because God is not all consumed about your comfort. You are, but God is not. He really is not concerned about your comfort at all. He doesn't want us happy. He wants us holy. Sometimes what makes us sinful creatures happy is the opposite of what would make us holy. And God is free to send the discomfort. And He did with Jonah. He sent a scorching east wind. You see, the plant has withered and now God has taken away Jonah's source of happiness. And then with the withering of the plant comes what is known as a Sirocco. And Dennis Bali in his Geography of the Bible describes the scorching east wind in the Middle East. And this is what a Sirocco is. During the period of a Sirocco, the temperature rises steeply, sometimes even climbing during the night. You see, on days like today when it's hot, and you're maybe not sweating as badly as I am, but when you sweat like this, I look forward to the evening when the sun goes down, I can turn on the fans, and I can lay on my bed and just soak in the nice cool air as it comes in the window. During a Sirocco, the temperature goes up even at night. So there's no relief from the heat. It sometimes can get worse at night. And it remains unusually high, usually about 16 to 22 degrees above the average. At times, every scrap of moisture seems to have been extracted from the air so that one has the curious feeling that one's skin has been drawn much tighter than usual. Sirocco days are peculiarly trying to the temper and tend to make even the mildest people irritable and fretful and to snap at one another for apparently no reason at all. So it's not just the wind, friends. It's like being in a convection oven. And does it really matter if you have shade when you're in a convection oven? Likely, with the Sirocco and the scorching east wind, Jonah's shelter would have withered, and his shade would have become sparse, and that wind would have rendered the shelter totally useless. Because now you have a wind that's rolling in off the desert. 
Now, had Jonah set up camp on the western side of the city, then the wind would have blown across the Tigris River and across that fertile plain and across sort of the cooler area of the valley. But Jonah gets the easterly wind coming from his back right off the desert, and it is a scorching east wind. And the text says that the sun beat down on Jonah's head. It's the same word used of the worm that attacked the weed. It attacked or it beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. And he is hot. And then what does Jonah say? It would be better for me to die than to live. Have you ever had heat sickness? Have you ever had heat stroke? I've had it a couple times. And if you have, you know what that's like. You work so long and hard in the heat and run to the direct sun and you're not used to it. It's early in the year or something like that. And it's 100 degrees out and you work and you sweat and you go home and you're tired. You're faint and you're sweating even while you're chilled. I've had that. Be sweating even while you're chilled. And so weak that you feel like you just can't even lift your arm to take a drink of water. And you drink water and then you're too weak to get up and go to the bathroom if you even have to because you're so dehydrated and you're faint and you're nauseous and you want to throw up. And Jonah finally gets to the point where it says, better for me to die than to live. Now what a change that is in Jonah, is it not? Less than 24 hours, what does the Bible say about him? He was exceedingly happy. And now what has changed? Now less than 24 hours later, he wants to die. And he's asking for death. And he thinks death would be better than life. What has changed? Has Jonah's God changed? No. Has God's will changed? No. Has God's Word changed? No. What has changed? One thing. Jonah's circumstances have changed. You remember back in Philippians chapter 4, we were talking about biblical contentment, where Paul says, I've learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. And I said back then that if your contentment is attached to your circumstances, so that your circumstances are the means by which you're made content, and you're content because of your circumstances, then when your circumstances change, what's going to happen to your contentment? You will go from being happy one day to being depressed and down the next day in a matter of 12 hours or 24 hours. And what has changed? Nothing but your circumstances. But if your contentment and your happiness is tied to your circumstances, then you'll never be content or happy because you can't control your circumstances. So what has changed for Jonah? Merely his circumstances have changed. And with the change in the circumstances comes Jonah's change in his emotions. Now had Jonah's contentment and his happiness and his joy been in the person of his God in the Word of His God, and in the work of His God, then even when the circumstances changed, Jonah wouldn't have changed. But instead, Jonah says, it is better for me now to die than to live. I want to leave you with this. One last observation. Jonah's depression and Jonah's misery, even though appointed by God, really is his own doing. Is it not? Had Jonah submissively obediently and joyfully done the will of God, what would he be enjoying right now? He would be enjoying fellowship with a large host of people who have now been converted under his ministry. And he would be having the privilege of teaching them the way and the word of God and receiving from them love and blessing and giving back to them love and blessing. And he would have spared himself all of this misery. But instead of rejoicing in the person and in the work of his God, Jonah is focused upon his own comfort, his own desires, his own needs, his own wants, his own predilections. And what is the result of it? He's miserable. Why? 
because God now has to chasten this prophet. And you say, what's the whole point of the object lesson? The weed, the worm, and the wind. Why all three of those things? What is it that God's trying to drive into Jonah's heart? It's in verses 9 to 11. We'll cover it next week. And next week will be our last week in the text of Jonah. Um, we may have one more thing about Jonah after that, but I haven't decided yet. But we will learn the important lesson that God is trying to show Jonah. And it is significant, friends, and it's very applicable to you and I. And we will learn that next week. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You for Your grace to us that is in Christ Jesus. You, by Your goodness, have shown us grace beyond measure. You have blessed us, and You have comforted us, and You have providentially ordered our steps and our lives that they might be for Your praise and Your glory and for our good. We thank You that in all things You are working to bring good to those who are Yours and who love You and are called according to Your purpose in Christ Jesus. Help us, O God, to see Your purpose and Your plan and Your character in all of life's events, to praise You for the good things and to rejoice even in the bad things, to thank You for good circumstances and to rejoice in bad circumstances. We pray, O God, that You would work upon our hearts and teach us the lesson of compassion and grace that You had for Jonah. It's applicable. It is relevant for us. And help us to see, O God, where our hearts are hardened to those who need You and need Your love and Your compassion. We ask these things for Jesus' sake and for His glory. In His name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.